Welcome to the BioCharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today we have Professor Longo, the brother to the infamous Dr. Narco Longo. Professor Longo is a publisher. He owns a bookstore in Lake Worth, Florida, and he has a wonderful temperament for putting what a lot of people in the truth community would call Tartarian history into a more relevant historical perspective. Uh, I've listened to about 12 hours of his podcasts, and um, I've been part of a podcast with he and his brother. Um, I think that was posted a week or so ago. So this is late January 2024, for those of you that are listening to this in a future date. Um, he has a very, very good bead on, I guess you would say what has created Western mysticism. And that's why I wanted to have him on. Um, my life has led me to kind of, you know, learn things that would be considered, um, pretty occult or occulted information, but the beauty of knowing somebody like Professor Longo is that it's actually in my genetic lineage, like it's actually part of my European ancestry. So um, enjoy the podcast. It's a, it's a, it's a two and a half hour banger. Listen to the whole thing. There are going to be so many different names that are dropped in this thing. If you want a, an education into uh, Western esotericism, this is it. So <laughs> buckle up. here with Professor Longo from Lake Worth, Florida. How goes it? It goes well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I've been on a bender listening to you on the one-on-one -on -one podcast. And uh, last week, I think, uh, was when you, I, and your brother recorded a nice little ditty on YouTube. And it, it just... It just seems like we're two peas in a pod. Two South Floridians separated by about 20-something years. But still have the the water molecule you know really really you know front and center in our consciousness and um you were talking to juan in one of his podcasts about the rosicrucians and when you were bringing up the rosicrucians this was about a year after I was told that a lot of the systems that I was into was was based on Rosicrucianism. And I I had no idea what that was. Right. And what was like, what was getting me was the fact that the whole mystic Christianity side, or now as you've been educating me, the Eastern Roman Christian Empire. Mm -hmm. I, th I think if, if I was to characterize where my mind and my conditioning leans towards, <clears throat> it's more of that 
Eastern Christian Constantinople yeah. mystery school type of of thinking. So, mm-hmm. welcome to the pod. I couldn't be happier to have you here. You know, let the audience know. Just l- let's just dive in with this. Sure. Um, you brought up the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine empire and that's definitely something i'm infatuated with mm-hmm. um i have no any uh certifications or anything and thank histor- god and historical background but i've read kind of all the books on it and i was just blown away by how little is known or how little it's talked about uh, the mm-hmm. byzantine empire which is basically for those who don't know the roman empire was massive and it got too big, and um, for various reasons, the capital was moved from Rome to Constantinople, um, mostly like defensive reasons and things like that, mm-hmm. and to just kind of like breathe some new life into the the empire. Um, but that ended up the church kind of hung back in Rome, um, and it ended up splitting the empire in half um, in the eastern half. sort of the byzantines they ended up continuing on for an extra a thousand years longer than the western roman empire that you know what we typically think of as like julius caesar and marcus aurelius and that roman empire uh, that collapsed you know totally collapsed by the 500s and constantinople and the byzantine empire was going until the 1400s um and you know all throughout the, the middle ages dark ages um, and for various reasons, that is sort of covered up and just not talked about. You know, we're we're made to believe that in you know from five from five hundred to fifteen hundred, there was very little going on in Europe, which is absolutely true in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if if you go to Eastern Europe, there was it was the center of the world. Constantinople was you know the Silk Road. And all the world's trade routes uh, went to Constantinople. Um, and to sort of show how important it was, and as Topher alluded to, their their version of Christianity was much more mystical. Uh, it still lives on in the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's They believe in a lot of sort of Neoplatonic um, mystical ideas and theology. It was very different from Catholicism. Um but anyways, if you, to show how important they were, when I think you know one of the most telling things is when you look at what happened when the empire collapses. So they're invaded um, by the Turks in the 1400s, and directly after that happens, you have two things occur. You have the Renaissance starts in Western Europe, which is a direct result of the Byzantine Empire collapsing Mm -hmm. all that knowledge all of that uh, mystical um, religion all of that uh, classical greco-roman knowledge of architecture and art and and all of those things comes flooding back into western europe which was very austere Um, and that causes the renaissance among other things you know there's obviously some economic reasons and what have you but you also have the age of exploration and why is that? It's because you used to have a trade route directly in between Asia and Europe mm-hmm. in Constantinople. It's it's the the sort of center of a wheel. Yes. You no longer 
have that and you have the Arab world directly in the middle. You can't go through there anymore. So you have to go around. You have to go, you know, why was no one going around Africa before? Because you didn't have to. You just go straight through Constantinople um, or you'd go to Constantinople and all the spices and all the Oriental things would be there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's a, a Arab controlled state and you have to you know, go on these perilous journeys all around the world to find the stuff. Um, so that just shows you how important. I mean, it was a big deal. It was sort of holding the world together mm-hmm. um, for a thousand years and super interesting. And it's basically a just to cut it short because um, I've done other things on it. What basically happens is the Catholic Church and then later even the, the Protestant churches um, just don't want to talk about it. They're like, we don't want people interested in this totally foreign version of christianity um, in all of its forms whether it's sort of the mystical greek orthodox or it's coptic or whatever it is uh, we want people you know just thinking that there were the dark ages rome went away uh, mm-hmm. totally not true and it's amazing i will tell you i've read almost all the books on the byzantine empire mm-hmm. and that's not many. There's not that many books. Uh, it's quality books. If you do a search, it's shocking. I mean, there's only maybe three historians who are considered. There's uh, Steve, Stephen Runciman, John Julius Norwich, and uh, I think it's Julia Heron or something Heron. Uh, those are the basically the three, and that's it. <laughs> but if you look at the Western Roman Empire, there's like, you know, volumes and hundreds we have cicero's letters and decline and fall of the roman empire it's this you know this long and you could know what this this uh emperor was having for breakfast on wednesday the 15th you know it's like you look at the byzantine empire there's like barely anything and they were around for you know over a thousand years so it's pretty shocking so what makes a lot of have sense to me with what you bringing up this history is my first architecture mentor was from Iran and Mm. Iran, you know, I don't know what they called Iran back in the days of Constantinople. Like, I don't know the name, but let's just call it Persia or something. Persia. And he actually identified as a Persian. Like he like, he called himself Persian. Yeah. They like to, yeah, it's a very, it's kind of like a noble, uh, title like you would say and he was from a, a very high family in persia like he was a he, he i think he went to oxford for architecture and he was building these massive skyscrapers in um in tehran iran wow. when in 1981 i believe it was they had a uh 8.0 earthquake hit and oh, leveled yeah. te- tehran and what he noticed, the only buildings that were left standing were these beehive domes that were both bakeries and mosques. Right. And, and like old, what used to be like old churches or whatever, but it was essentially these vaults, you know, like a lancet arch vault that was spun on its access to give you a beehive dome. Right. And he was like, why am I building these square, like these huge structures that yeah. just with a little bit of earthquaking, they, they, they fall to the ground, yet yeah. these structures that are made out of, of dirt, essentially, clay, right. um, 
they're 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 still up and they've been up for a thousand years wow and so um the shape the the actual shape of the structure these vaults you can find through all the architecture like i was looking at some of this architecture through constantinople it, what what's the name oh, of yeah. that massive mosque is this the one that i have up? Hagia Sophia. That Hagia Sophia, like yeah. liter literally one of the first things that we ever built was we built off of a square. We built yeah. four arches yeah. and then we kept building uh, what's known as a flying buttress, which is a is a vault that terminates at a vertice to give support. Yeah. And we are doing all this without mortar. And it was just watching the geometry and how the geometry yeah. of these curves, whether it's a, you know, a hemispherical curve, whether it's a convex curve, all these curves lending to the strength of architecture. And it's just like, I mean, it's so, so beautiful is one thing, yeah. but another thing, I mean, it, 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 it lasts, <laughs> it stands. Yeah. The test well, yeah, that, I think the Hagia Sophia is like, Oh, well over a thousand years old. I think it's close to 1200, 1300 years old. It was originally, obviously it was originally a church, uh -huh. right? I think it was built three or four hundreds. Um, it was a church and I, you're going to have to look that up, but I think it was the largest dome, like sort of whatever you call it, freestanding dome or something uh -huh. um, in the world at the time. And it was covered completely in Christian iconography and then when the the Arab Turks um, took it over, they they kind of, which is very sad, they kind of washed it, um, right. like cleaned the walls and <laughs> took away all the Christian, a lot of the Christian stuff, and they put the spires up on the corner so it looks like a mosque. Mm -hmm. um, they they added those on, but I mean, doing that over a thousand years ago, years ago, and in that region, I think they also get uh, earthquakes in in Turkey as well. Yeah, they so, do. They just had a big one. They had a 7.0. I think a 7.1 that flattened, like it, they said yeah. something like 100,000 people were homeless from it. Yeah, and that thing's not going any, anywhere. No. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable what they were doing. Well, let's get into a little bit of why you think the Catholic like was it just a was it just a power play that the papacy just wanted to essentially own the narrative essentially yes yeah yeah they did not want your sort of typical education to include that there's many forms of christianity you know they right. wanted it to be like there's the vatican and the vatican says you know decide what goes decides what goes in the bible and they tell you you know how theology works and how, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's it. And that's not it, you know, because of the Eastern uh, Orthodox church, Greek Orthodox church, they have the, who they call the, um, what do they call them? The, uh, it's not the Pope, but they have a different term for him. Oh, the patriarch mm -hmm. of the church. So they have their own guy even. They have their own sort of, uh, I don't know if he's considered a prophet, but, you know, sort of leader of the church. Um, and they're, they believe in an apophatic God, which is a term you hear mm -hmm. Ken Wheeler use in a lot of Neoplatonic yes. people. It means a sort of a God beyond being, mm -hmm. um, a God that uh, includes being within itself. Yes. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is a, a sort of radical and different idea. And those theological things in the early days of the church was were a big deal. You know, they were not small things, mm -hmm. like we might think of them now. Um, and they are highly mystical. You know, they're they're much more they're much closer to the east. You know, to India, to Egypt, mm -hmm. to uh, the Arab to the Arab world. And and because of Constantinople's role as this sort of center of the world, cosmo cosmopolitan um, city you you have a huge influx of different ideas mm -hmm. um kind of like what was happening in alexandria um in in the roman empire mm -hmm. um, which by the way that would be considered byzantine at, at the time mm -hmm. and um you know you have a meeting of all these different ideas from uh greek philosophy to egyptian you know mysticism and arab science and all these things um and the vatican was not getting any of that no you know they were kind of off in the west they were in you know italy and france and england and so on and they weren't they weren't um drinking from that fountain and they didn't want people to know <laughs> you know that's what was going on i mean you look at the byzantine empire at the exact same time that the western um the western europe is like feudal you know you're living mm -hmm. as a peasant or a lord and you're just raking a field and you're eating dry cereal and you're illiterate and then you look at the byzantine empire the eastern roman empire and there's the hagia sophia and golden things and mm -hmm. you know beautiful art and people are very educated and worldly and cosmopolitan and the vatican's just like yeah like don't look that way you know <laughs> and they they're still doing that they still basically want you to think there's protestantism sorry protestantism and Catholicism and that's kind of your options and that is completely not that's half the story um, and I'm not advocating any form of Christianity Christianity I you know I don't, I don't care that's up to the person but it's just that's what hooked me was I was like whoa hold on what's going on here you know there's a thousand years of history that's like actually you know more or less erased um, you know, and a lot of the Tartarian type people, old world people are obsessing over these extremely speculative things. Um, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this and that. And they're like really looking for breadcrumbs. Meanwhile, you have like an actual reset, like a real cover up a thousand years of history that's completely forgotten about, not written about, almost never studied uh, in the Western world. Uh, don't you know we could care less about it it's it's amazing really have you ever gone down the rabbit hole of looking into the great wall of china i have not i have not so when i look at turkey or back then known as constantinople and you look yep. at it where it is I've seen a couple documentaries where they've shown that the great wall of china is more of an east to west um, build and that there was actually um, a lot of evidence that it was built by the Romans. And if you were saying it's a, it, Rome went east, right? And it obviously became very lavish through trade. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it became yeah. this incredibly strong, you know, for lack of a better term, worldwide 
economic engine, it would actually behoove them to have a a trade road going all the way across Asia. And so, you know, you're, you're the one who's been enlightened, enlightening me on the Byzantine empire. And I, I didn't pay any attention really to the, the thesis that the great wall of China wasn't actually Chinese, that it was Roman facing the other way. (laughs) But the, but what was crazy was what they were talking about was the Chinese didn't build that. Like there's obviously Chinese ornamentation on it now. Yeah. But the way that road was built was exactly the way Romans like to build their roads down to the segmentation, down to the, to the, the actual towers and the forts. Like if you just went by the measurements and the segmentation, you would never would have thought it's Chinese because you don't see Chinese building like that anywhere else in China. Interesting. Yeah. I heard that. That's fascinating. I I, I had no idea. Yeah. It, it, it's it's very very interesting um your brother has brought to the light you know the archivist on youtube mm-hmm. ben yeah. ben yeah and yeah he, i know ben and he's shown the construction of that that other great wall that was essentially running parallel to the mississippi have you right. seen his work on that yes yeah yeah i follow ben's work uh, somewhat closely and that that he's he has some amazing things i mean that guy he does his homework for sure. And that was, yeah, that was kind of mind blowing for me. And uh, Dr. Narco Longo at mm-hmm. Old World Florida, he, my older brother, he um, has a, many videos on the Greeks in America. Yes. Um, so that's where that, I'm going with this. It's like, and they've what? done really well. And, and the Greeks are the Byzantine. You know, they spoke yeah. Greek. And that, that's another distinction, by the way, between Western and eastern roman empire was the western roman empire continued to speak latin their church did everything in latin Mm -hmm. the eastern roman empire um were greco-roman basically they Mm -hmm. they spoke greek um and they identified as roman but they were kind of like this greek roman mix that's Mm -hmm. really interesting and i i kept saying to him like you know yes the greeks may have been in america but it's not the greeks you're thinking of it's not the greeks of plato you know, it, it's the Greeks of the Eastern Roman Empire, this like worldwide empire, you know, the center of the world. Like mm-hmm. if anyone was in America, I think, yeah, they it would be them. Because the one thing that you were bringing up with Juan was the fact that there was incredible technology. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it is a whole rabbit hole. <laughs> like like you said earlier, yeah. uh, they had they had animatronics. Yes, they had, they had steam powered, and this is not. That's why I love the Byzantine Empire. Is this is not speculation. This is not um, Tartarian stuff. That's like kind of out there, and mm-hmm. we're like, oh, you know, did they have like blimps with nuclear fission going? You know, like just I'm like, all right, I, I don't know. I'm actually not that much of a conspiracy guy mm-hmm. uh, when it comes down to it. But this is this is real stuff. Like there are real accounts of people visiting the emperor uh, in, in Constantinople and he has like lions that would roar mm-hmm. like golden lions that are basically robotic. They're animatronics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had birds that would, you know, flutter their wings and, and chirp and things like that. And yeah, unbelievable. If you Google the Constantinople cisterns, wait till you see this, what they had going on underneath the city. 
I mean, it's a joke. Oh, now you're talking my my language. Cisterns, I've been into building egg-shaped uh, water tank. So yeah. we really see this. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's under, under modern day Istanbul. Let me share this with everyone. So look at this thing. Mm -hmm. That is just like, you have no idea about, have you gone in into with your studies into cymatics and then also piezoelectricity? Because I know your brother, uh -huh. your brother was talking in one of the podcasts with you about how a speaker and a microphone are essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So in piezo, piezoelectricity means when you, you can convert a mechanical vibration into mm. electricity. That's, that's like a, a, something that's piezoelectric. So crystals are very well known for being piezoelectric. But one thing a lot of people don't understand is arches, arch forms are piezoelectric. This is something that Ken Wheeler talks about is the wow. arch form. Yeah. Is that an arch? Like we've all seen tuning forks. What's at the base of a tuning fork? It's sure. an arch form. Right. Makes total sense. And what that is, is it's the basic representation in, in yeah. For magnet, yeah. like the sort of stereotypical horseshoe shaped magnet. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So when you're looking at these cisterns, what you're seeing is you're seeing all these convex arches that are vaulted with mass. And in construction, mass rules the day. And they have water at the base. Well, water is it will carry any frequency that you put in it. And so what these people knew, because a lot of them did a lot of different, well, I shouldn't say it that way. Let's just say there's many mystical traditions that water is the universal solvent, the universal carrier of energy, the universal... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah this is connect our both of our love of water and the Byzantine yes. Empire meets here. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these arch forms. Well, guess what? This is underneath a structure that usually had some sort of musical mm. element going on. At least in in uh, Western Europe, you found a lot of these types of arch forms and vaults in the basements of cathedrals. Sure. And all these cathedrals would have these organs, these pipe organs, which guess what? Were grounded in the water. Why would yeah. they ground an organ in the water? It was because they oh knew the piezoelectric nature of this is you had all these arch forms. Right. right. Because that, why build arches that are holding water? What's the point? You know? Yeah. Well, one, one, it's very like any architect that's kind of lame will say, well, it's very stable. And yes, that's true. But there's a secondary benefit to it. When you look at the marbles and the different types of rock, the different types of granite that was being used in these arch forms, they would usually have like some sort of a hard rock pillar that would go up to some sort of brick, laid brick arch form. And mm -hmm. that brick, guess what? It it acts as a um, in bioelectricity. It acts as a capacitor. 
So you yeah. get people above singing or playing music or doing whatever ritual it is that creates a bass resonant frequency in the structure above. And then all of that is being amplified and arched down into the water below. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They were advanced. I mean, there's no question about it. This is the cover up. I mean, yes, this was not going on in mid, uh, the middle ages in Western Europe, but absolutely these are sort of, you know, classical Greek, Greco, Egyptian, uh, Roman secrets, you know, that absolutely they're playing organs into the water. This, that cistern, you can go down and visit it now. Uh-huh. That cistern holds 17 and a half million gallons of water. It's like 10,000 square meters or something, you know, just absurd. And look, uh, type in head after like cistern head there's a you can see at the base of some of these they're extremely ornate and they're like shocking oh, yeah <laughs> when you see the image it's like i mean what the hell upside down head you know it's just i mean look at that that's that's quite the water tank you know that's a yeah. And that's the thing is like uh, what we were talking about with your bro too, is the whole thing is like, you know, our memory isn't in our body, our, our memory, like our body is an antenna and to have our antenna, like when you're a healthy person, the water in you is coherent. And because that coherence acts like a crystal, now all the water vapor that's around you, you have access to. Usually when I work on people where their memory is horrible, they're dehydrated, they have an incoherent body, they have an incoherent field, so they can't access this extra memory. And so you have these heads that are upside down. It's so representative of like, Hey man, our whole mind is in the water without like, if, if you've ever tried to think when you're like supremely dehydrated, you can't yeah. like your mind goes away. It's, it's, yeah. it, it just does. There's no ability yeah. to think. That's a very mystical symbol. Like you're saying it's mm -hmm. upside down being dunked, you know, and I, I think right away, um, I think of Odin actually. Uh, in Norse mythology, Odin hangs himself, um, not not by the head, obviously, but by his foot upside down uh, mm. from the world tree, the, the Axis Mundi, the tree that's the center of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, he hangs himself upside down, which is also the hanged man in the tarot. And he, he puts himself in sort of this suffering position uh, in order to gain the knowledge of the runes. He discovers language while hanging upside down over over water his head is like sort of right over the the lake um and he the he has sort of a revelation of the runes and that i don't know why i think of that but looks like you, that you're gonna trip out then man listen to this one of the last like rites of passage when you're a raja yogi mm -hmm. is you i love swami Vivekananda, by the way if you've read uh he's yes amazing. Raja Yoga, the book by him is so good. Go on. Yes. <laughs> but I was a little bit younger than you. That was like my jam. That was all I was doing. So oh. in Raja Yoga, you complete your practicum by essentially being in a one hour headstand. Interesting. 
Very interesting. I yeah, had yeah. not heard that. Yeah, yeah. And you actually can, you hold it where like, if you're actually peaking on the very pinnacle of your head, like you're, if you get your, your spine right, where everything stacks in that pressure is just directly on the top, top, top part crown of the head. Then you actually mm -hmm. end up having like this, like crazy interstellar yeah. travel. Right. And what Just I think it was, it didn't experience. I had that experience and I didn't I couldn't frame it until I read um Stephen Kotler's uh Raising Superman. I think it's something mm. like that, or Engineering Superman, where that book mm. is talking about getting into the zone and like what it takes for somebody to drop into uh what's it's essentially an alpha and theta brainwave state at the same time right. where you're not consciously resisting anything in your environment, but yet you have hyper awareness and it usually you have to have an element of danger in it. Interesting. And so what occurs is when you're in a headstand for a, a long given period of time, exhaustion starts to come in. Right. Yeah. And in that exhaustion, like if you're not like a very fit person, this is why they did it at the end of the, the Raja yoga, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the craziness that I was exposed to. Like when you're in that for that long, you start to have fear. Like you start to have like real skin in the game. Cause it's like, am I going to mm -hmm. quit? Am I going to stay in this? Like, and then you're like getting woozy. Cause when you have all that blood rushing to your head, it kind of shuts off your oh, prefrontal God. cortex. So you're not sure. in you're not in your thinking mind anymore. And then mm -hmm. you have the pressure there. You actually have the pressure there. Like you're not used to having the pressure on the top of your head. And man, does yeah. that like ignite like a crazy journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of that is the in in the Odinic mysteries, in the Norse uh mystery traditions without a doubt and he like you said the element of danger i did leave out that odin was also pierced by a spear i think mm -hmm. he he pierced himself while he was hanging upside down which people obviously make the christ comparison to sort of hanging on a cross or hanging upside down on a tree and the spear and all of that um but it definitely and the raja yoga connection is even even better i see you have the sort of travel travel guide there yeah. That's, if anyone goes to Istanbul, check out the Hagia Sophia and the cisterns. I mean, that stuff is top notch. I mean, I can't wait to go. Yeah, I'm I you know, I was in Bulgaria, but I didn't make it like I wasn't I didn't I'd never ever once had a desire to go to Turkey. But yeah. I didn't I didn't really know what was there. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. So I have a quick question, and this might be out of your wheelhouse, but what is, from what you know of, like, the Christianity that was being, you know, practiced in Constantinople before uh, the Moors crushed it, or before they took over, I should say, um, was their type of Christianity, did they actually believe in a real historical Jesus, do you know? Or is there any mention? Or did they have a different mystical connection? 
be honest, I don't know um, on the his, on the historicity of uh, of Jesus in that tradition. I, I haven't read a whole lot about it. Um, I would be curious though on on all things that I've read theologically, they tend to be much more esoteric, much more mystical, much more non-literal without a doubt. I'm not gonna make any claims on that one, but mm-hmm. my guess is um, it would be a larger percentage of people in that tradition are definitely more in the, he's like a sacred myth kind of a mystery school and not so much a literal historical person, but the Prague clock is, Prague is another just fascination of mine. I mean, that's another period of time. Yes. That's extraordinary. So this is what I'm going to do. I want us to lead from, so we have Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Um, The history of how it falls is not important to me, but we do know that they had pretty much a more mystical connection to things because they just had a lot more exposure. Let's just, yeah, yeah. there's no way you can like the worldly people. I know people that have traveled, they're just more mystical because you're just, you're exposed to so many more things. Whereas the people that stay in one little city for their entire life and don't have exposure to other ways of thinking, there's yeah. a tendency to think that that's the only way, right? Yeah. And so you have the 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 not the Platonic Greeks, but like let's just say we have the Byzantine Greeks traveling worldwide. They're they're touching you know flavors of the East. They're they're all over. They're, they're, they have a technology, which means that they can actually apply. Yeah. They, they have the, the, the gnosis of application. Like they can actually sure. apply theory and actually make things go. Mm. And then you end up having in the Czech Republic, you know, this beautiful place called Prague. Yeah. Sure. And, and you were saying in one of the pods that I listened to that Prague was sort of like the the melting pot of all the out al- all the alchemical traditions from everywhere everything yeah in, without a doubt in the um in the 1500s and again this is right after the fall of the byzantine empire in the mid uh, 1400s the 1500s obviously um you're getting into the renaissance mm-hmm. in europe and in Prague, in particular, from the 1500s, even up until the early 1600s, um, probably ending in like the 30 years war, which was like, for those who don't know, just devastated, like all of Europe, it was like World War One, it was just horrible. <laughs> and um, in between that period, Prague was definitely not the center of the world, it was not the center of Europe, uh, for the most part. But it was the center of learning and especially sort of esoteric hermetic alchemical magical you know you name it occult learning it was absolutely the place to be you know nothing was even number two Uh, and especially the time period that i'm into i've talked about before is when you had the holy roman emperor um rudolph ii he was very young and he becomes the uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. 
um, which was usually, for those who don't know, was based out of um, Vienna, it was in Austria. And he moves the capital, which is just like in absurdity, basically, you know, for this young guy to just be like, yeah, like, I don't, I'm out of Vienna, like, we're going to Prague. Um, why he chose Prague, we don't know. We don't have like a stated reason. Um, and he, it's so sort of, um, I don't know, sort of like dark and just occulty. The architecture lends to that. The architecture looks like that's what would be going on there, mm -hmm. um, which could be the cause, you know, or at least an effect of it. Um, and he sets up camp and he has all the money and power in the world, literally. And he starts inviting a who's who. You have John D, Edward Kelly, Giordano Bruno, uh, Johannes Kepler. Um, who else is there? What's what's the other guy's name? There's another uh, alchemist. I can't remember. But he at one point he had like a hundred alchemists working for him. He's obsessed mm -hmm. by the philosopher's stone. And you had all these people. Uh, uh, astrologers astronomers alchemists magician everyone's there and they're collecting this wunderkammer this cabinet of curiosities the wonders of the world it's like a proto museum basically because mm -hmm. obviously there, there weren't museums and there weren't even really many universities of that that style um and they were just collecting everything animals stones uh me mechanical objects clocks um you name it, uh, manuscripts, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you could just go there and study all the stuff in one place, um, which is kind of a Renaissance invention. And a lot came out of it. Um, actually, we'll get to that, but the Rosicrucians came out of it Yay. out of Prague in that, in that time period. Um, and it, yeah, it absolutely is a fascinating time period for anyone. And even after that time period, Prague has maintained that um, that's that state. You had Franz Kafka, you know, very like gothic and you know genius come out of Prague. Um, you have Franz Bardon, a famous uh, like ceremonial magician, um, occultists come out of Prague. A lot of famous, you know, and you look at the architecture and it just looks gothic. It just looks, you know it exudes that it really does um, and yeah so interesting to me it's these time periods are to me more interesting than a conspiracy or something you know like it's more speculative stuff i'm i'm there's so much juice and you know these things that are i hate to say like factual or whatever but you know more like a literal and detailed mm -hmm. well it's brilliant because uh, you, you've kind of made a connection for me because I, I didn't really understand and I didn't really care to tell you the truth. But you made the connection essentially if you have the mecca of all of the alchemists happening mm -hmm. right here in Prague, it makes sense that somebody like Victor Schauberger <laughs> yeah. would, would come with his full... Because I've always wondered, like, how is it in the late 1800s you have Tesla, you have uh, Reich, you have uh, Schauberger. Like you just had in this area of the world, you literally had the minds that like wholly from a technological standpoint. Yeah. 
were hundreds of years ahead of their time. Yeah. And it all came from this little area right here. Yeah, yeah, that part of Eastern Europe and it's it's insane. Uh Germany and Austria, Croatia and Czech Republic, all those areas just what they've done. Like you said, especially in that time period in various points in history is just outrageous. Um and I've talked I think I've talked about Juan to it, but Prague is actually one of uh if not one of the only places in the world where you can find moldavite yes which is a type of type of a uh, meteoric crystal glass and it's a very mystical stone it's a dark green it i believe it's a type of glass um and it, it's literally in the soil there yeah because that the prague basin or the czech basin is um where a meteor hit you know, but however, bajillion many years ago and carved out like this massive basin where Prague is. Um, so in the surrounding areas in the Czech Republic, there's there's Moldavite in, literally in the ground. It's like, you know, it's like radioactive or something. And I think that that is where a lot of the occult origins of it come from, I think. So I'm interviewing a woman named uh, Stephanie McPeak Peterson. She has a wonderful YouTube channel that I think you would love because she uh, dives into John D and mm. um, everything with Elizabeth the first in the writings of Shakespeare. Oh, and so. <laughs> yeah, right and up so, my alley. Yeah. And so, and she's also a musician and she, she gets into music theory on her channel. Yeah. And um, it's, we're going to go into music theory a little bit. We're going to go into the alchemy of money creation, but she's been able to show that there's essentially um, three gates in North America in the United States that are essentially over different types of of a uh, very special stone, and yeah. one of them is moldavite. Sure, it's Prague, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the the other two are God. I'm I'm I don't want to misspeak, but there are other like um, it's the stone that has both silver and gold in it. Also, I think it's um. Mm -hmm. God, I'm not remembering the name. Uh, like I, I didn't study geology in that way, so I don't. I it. Yeah. It just, <laughs> it's not there. But she's showed okay. like the 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 gate. The so you have the gate to the west was St. Louis. That's over a very specific stone. Then you have the gate, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge in the San Francisco area. I I forget. It's some sort of vite. It's not moldavite. And then up in BC, there's another gate. And the, when you look at the triangle of those, there's a very specific, uh, I guess you would say, uh, from the city capital perspectives relative to the to the uh, economic drivers of North America. Like she, wow. she she paints like a really cool picture of the mystical toponymy of that relative wow. to these stones yeah yeah uh, yeah spot on with what we were just talking about uh, yeah basically the moldavite has caused this sort of occult uh gothic flavor to the czech republic and probably all kinds of genius you know mm -hmm. coming out 
it's literally an extraterrestrial stone, you know, um, at least again, that's like the mainstream story. I don't want to get into any, anything about space or anything, but um, this, the, at least the mainstream story is it comes from space and on, you know, meteors basically, where the meteors heat up creates it. Um, and that is fascinating to me. That is, that is absolutely fascinating. So you gave me a, a good little a good little teaser about actually, you know, this was also the area in which Rosicrucianism was born. Yes. So um, yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah, give me a little so let's let's actually talk about what Rosicrucianism is and like how that was probably in the Western European circles pretty frowned upon yeah uh for yeah for many many reasons uh the rosicrucians are a secret society a brotherhood that was founded in the early 1600s um it was well you know founded at least to the public knowledge because uh, they would lay claims to being much older and you know ties to the knights templar and that sort of deal um but at least to the public knowledge um to historians in the early 1600s um you had three documents which were published which are uh the fame of the brotherhood of the rose cross is the first one and then you had the confession of the brotherhood of the rose cross these are like a year or two apart and then you had the chemical wedding of christian rose and Kruitz. those are the big three sort of founding documents uh that the society is based on and very esoteric, very cryptic, um, very old. And they claim to be the product of a man, sort of a mythical man. We have no idea if he was real or, or mythical, um, named Christian Rosenkreutz. Um, his sort of story is it's a sort of a myth um at least the way the story's formed i think um he was born in about the 1300s he lived to be extremely old like over 100 years old um he traveled the whole world kind of like a pythagoras type character mm -hmm. traveled through, you know egypt and studied with the magi and the sufis and the kabbalists and then came back to europe with that knowledge uh, and set up camp um and he gained a few followers and they set up a temple, which they called the house of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is interesting with the architecture. We can get into that. Uh, the house of the Holy Spirit is already an interesting title. Um, and that was kind of the Rosicrucian uh, clubhouse, so to speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they claim that it was hidden by clouds and fog and you couldn't get to it. Sort of like this Arthurian type um mystical castle if you would and um anyways they they go on various you know adventures and things and gain you know gaining wisdom from all over the world and then for about 120 years from like 1500 to the early 1600s there's nothing at least in their myth their mythological history and then all of a sudden the rosicrucians are born when they discover the tomb where Christian Rosenkreutz was buried. Um, sort of a, some brothers who survived 
part of the society found his tomb after 120 years of laying there. They claim that he, he hadn't decomposed at all. Um, he was in a, I believe it was, they said that the, his tomb was in the center of the earth, which is obviously like metaphorical. Um, and the quote that they always cite, the Rosicrucian site is, it's alchemical motto. And it means it's a uh, visit the interior, interior of the earth by rectification, thou shalt find the hidden stone, which is very much you know, um, mystical, psychological, if you would. Mm-hmm. Everything they're doing is symbolic. Everything's cryptic. Um, and this was the, um, well, first of all, his body was found, they said, um, in like a heptagonal um, tomb, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Why, why that's part of the, the myth hepta is how many sides i don't want to want to be wrong in that hepta is seven so you know the shape of the heart is seven correct have you seen have you seen that i have not but that is here i'll show you musical notes and chakras and all that as well well there's a so I am obsessed with um, geometry, as you know. (laughs) And the heart, we were told, was a pump. But it's not a pump in the way that it's actually um, shaped. It's actually, it's what's known as an, it's an an imploder. It's essentially an implosion pump. It's not a pressure pump. So you see this right here, this symbol up here. Is it? Yep. Is, wonder if that if sure. I can make that larger. So this is a heptagon. I'm wondering if this is what his, what his. Yeah. Probably something similar. Yeah. I can actually just put heptagon in and. Uh... Yeah, it's so, an interesting detail and they said that the walls too the walls were covered in like symbols from all over the world um and things like that and just very very mystical and strange and they claim that rosenkreutz uh kreutz was you know first of all that he's still kind of around that he's like this enlightened like bodhisattva type character that you know sort of incarnates like once every hundred years um Uh they believe they believe in sort of the steinarian Theosophical schools that he's the Count of Saint Germain, right? Um, believe that Rosenkreutz was uh, Lazarus in the Bible, who's also Saint John, if you follow Rudolf Steiner, um, which is a, another story, but which so, is also very. So check this out. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Doctor Francisco Guasp. But he was a Spanish doctor that pretty much figured out our heart is essentially just one long muscle that is a ribbon that's wrapped. And and it's wrapped in a heptagon. Like Mm -hmm. when you actually see the shape of it, um, I forget, I wish I remember the artist's name, but he's actually made it into the 
the reason why Dr. Tom Cowan picked that symbol is because that is, I guess you would call it the the um, the non curvilinear shape of the heart. And so mm -hmm. there's this there's this technology that I know you've talked about a little bit called cavity structure effect. Um, from well, there's cavity structure effect, and then there's sympathetic. Uh, then there's sympath there's sympathy through geometry, which is also a part of uh, sympathetic vibratory physics. But the whole notion is is you can perfectly nest a shape. So let's say that the heart is like absolutely critical for the 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 health of the body, which we could all pretty much agree on. But maybe if you were put in a heptagonal, you know, an actual coffin <laughs> or sarcophagi that looked like a heptagon, yeah. maybe that would actually have that perfect nesting geometry effect on the heart, which that yeah. that which could actually, you know, in a way energetically embalm. Yeah, right. It's a good connection, right? They say that he was had not decomposed and they give, you know, and again. The Rosicrucian, these are Rosicrucian secrets. It's a secret society. It's all there if you're willing to study it, like Topher is right now, you know, decoding the stuff. Why is it heptagonal tomb, you know, or, or coffin? Why, you know, why had he not decomposed after 120 years? All this stuff, it, it is in there. Um, they, the reason that I've, you know, I gave a little background to Rosicrucians. The reason I think they're important. Um, is because their line of thinking really reintroduced um, sort of this esoteric, mystical Christianity back to Western Europe. Uh, it, it was there with, you know, Cathars and um, some of the, the Gnostics and things like that. But in the Middle Ages, they, they kind of hunted those guys down, you know, got, got rid of them. And um, with the Protestant movements in uh, northern europe in germany and england it opened up a lot more room for mysticism for esoteric interpretations of the bible and new versions of christianity um and that's why where prague comes into it is you have john d he goes to prague um and then you have things going on with sort of the Germans um, in, in Prague and in England, there's, there's all kinds of, it's a lot of backstory, to be honest, of uh, people getting married to other people and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, a lot of these Prague, a lot of the ideas which were founded in that time in Prague during Rudolf II with John Dee and, and the, the rest of the fellows, um, they didn't necessarily, I don't know, disseminate it in Prague so it's not like it was it's not like a lot of people were in, involved on it it was kind of a tight little circle um, but then as it moved those ideas especially John Dee's Monus uh, Hieroglyphica moves those ideas move back towards Germany and England you get these secret societies forming around these mystical alchemical astrological teachings coming out of Prague in that time if that makes sense. So in the 1500s, you have all this crazy um, esoteric study going on in Prague. And then the early 1600s, 
after that that it's sort of passed it moves west and as it moves west it becomes much more um i wouldn't say necessarily for the public but more like groups are catching on and saying okay we need to take this and guard it and you know make a, a sort of brotherhood around these ideas because these are important and um, we can't let them go and that's sort of kind of what was happening in the rosicrucians you know they have all that backstory but it's mostly like probably just sort of cryptic mythology that mm -hmm. their teachings are encoded into but their their ideas were so influential uh, the freemasons get all the the hype you know all the attention and they you know they're important too there's a lot to unpack there but the rosicrucians um were right alongside them uh, in many ways similar they shared a lot um and they produced so many interesting people obviously we we both are interested in rudolf steiner he was a rosicrucian mm -hmm. uh, people speculate that carl jung was a rosicrucian he sure sounds like it yeah sure sounds like it um and many German uh, intellectuals and esotericists were, were definitely uh, Rosicrucians. Um, and then where it gets really interesting and sort of ends, at least for now, is that, uh, well, and a lot of people don't know this, but the Golden Dawn, if you look up the Golden Dawn, their logo is a rose cross. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, the Golden Dawn is the British version of the Rosicrucians, which are mainly a, a Germanic um order and so mm -hmm. the golden dawn is a a branch of, of rosicrucianism and that's where you get you know all of these crowley alistair crowley and wb yates and all these people um who made some huge advancements uh, you know if you look at the early 20th century you have steiner crowley uh young all these people and they're all sort of drinking from the same fountain you know whether it's the golden dawn or the rosicrucians um, it's a, it, it's definitely interesting stuff. Um, I've had so much fun sort of through Steiner learning about the Rosicrucians, mm -hmm. uh, because he made a lot of Rosicrucianism explicit, exoteric. So yes. now a lot of Steiner's teachings are not necessarily things he just dreamt up sitting on the edge of his bed. They are Rosicrucian secrets rosicrucian esoteric teachings um that have been handed down for hundreds and hundreds of years that he's now making uh known to the public much like alistair crowley was making you know magical um secrets known to the public they're not necessarily things he just came up with you know so let me build a bridge for people that aren't aware of of the technology the naturalist technology that Rudolf Steiner was teaching in his biodynamics. I lived on a biodynamic farm where we would do biodynamic preps. And to the modern agriculturalist, you would think that we were absolutely nuts. Mm -hmm. But we would take a preparation and put it in a bull's horn, which wow. when you look at the bull's horn, it's a, it's a perfect spiral the way it works inside yeah. of it and then a new moon or depending on what the prep was we would follow the moon cycle and we put that prep and we bury it and you go soil test a month later 
The only thing that we did to the land was what we put in that prep. But somehow, some way, now that mineral content, the goods that were in that bull's horn, yeah. is now in the land. Yeah. Now, you ask any person that believes solely in Newtonian billiard ball world, yeah. and they'll be like, that's impossible. There are some other factors. And I will yeah. tell you, he was teaching, or if he was just funneling the Rosicrucian model, he had his original stuff too, but yeah. yeah, but he was essentially showing the what we now call radionics. Mm. And like, the, if you want to know about radionics, just type in radionics and look into the U.S. military's funding of radionics. And some people call it scalar physics. You can call it whatever you want in this regard, but you're talking about billions with a mm -hmm. B of investment into radiotics and scalar physics. It is the way it, it is the way this, this, uh, realm works. Yeah. And it, he, and he, like you said earlier with a lot of the Eastern European, Germanic, Slavic, uh, guys from that era, he is literally hundreds of years ahead of his time. Yes. You know, that signer could, you could, pick it up and be like what the hell is you know this is a bunch of nonsense stuff you know it's so foreign and strange and then you see it you know you see it in practice like here's an example you you, you gave a good one on that side i'll give i'll give you one on um sort of the biblical more like uh, esoteric side he has an idea that steiner has an idea that lazarus in the bible the guy who's resurrected from the dead by jesus that lazarus after he is risen that that is a sort of initiation right mm -hmm. you sort of uh mythically or uh hypothetically die um or ritually die and then come back mm -hmm. and you've been initiated in the in the you know the wisdom and that after his initiation he becomes john yes saint john and that is interesting and he has his points for it and i you know i thought about it. at first i was like what the hell that's bizarre um and one of his things is that they don't use the name john until after lazarus is risen he just kind of pops up out of nowhere mm -hmm. um but again if you're a rosicrucian this is like clearest day you're like yeah we we know what happened like that mm -hmm. he is lazarus um but what's interesting which is kind of what you were saying with the other stuff it I saw a proof in it where all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, this guy is onto something because I started looking into the book of revelation, just kind of in my own study. And I was like, who, who wrote the book of revelation or who, who uh, did this revelation come to, you know? And it's John. John. And then I'm like, Oh, that makes perfect sense because he's the initiated one. He's exactly. the one who died and came back. And now he's ready to receive that revelation. He's the one who can now see the future. And all of a sudden, Steiner is not that crazy. You know, now I feel like a initiate because I'm reading it uh, and I'm like, I, wow, I feel like I actually know sort of a, a line of um, thought that not many people reading the Bible are onto. And Steiner and the Rosicrucians are all, you know, I mean, chock full of that stuff. And Steiner in particular, his... 
uh, esoteric stuff is interesting, but like you said, his more mundane theories of agriculture, architecture, medicine, you name it. I mean, they're, they're super advanced, uh, education, obviously with the Waldorf schools also super advanced. Uh, yeah, just, he, he blows my mind consistently. Absolutely. And have you ever watched the show, the OA? I have not. Okay. So it was a Netflix show. It's probably like four years old or whatever. It's one of the best shows I've ever seen because Check it out. Sp spoiler alert in the first season, there's essentially this, um, you, even though he's a psychopath, he's an initiate. And what he's doing is he's ritualistically drowning six subjects. So he's, yeah. ba he's baptizing them. Yeah. And like in the show, like my big question when I first started watching it is like, why does he drown them? Like, why would you use water to drown them? Well, that's a baptism. Yeah. And yeah. then he, he brings them back to life and he does this to actually map mm -hmm. how you can time travel. Oh man. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. And that's all I'll say. Cause I don't want to ruin the show for you. The show's kind of slow in the beginning and they they build a lot of innuendo into it and everything like that. But my goodness, is it excellent. Yeah, I will definitely check it out. Um, and kind of to bridge what we were talking about earlier with architecture with Steiner, because I've read a good bit of it. Uh, he has a, a whole book on architecture and he was an architect, you know, a very yes. accomplished architect by the way um, which is he was a polymath you know he, he's like a da Vinci or type character the guy spoke you know he could lecture in French lecture in English lecture in German he could build massive buildings he could do sculptures and paintings and write books of men. I mean it's like the guy is uh, on a whole other level um, the Gertianum is a uh, sort of the central building for his group uh, and he designed the whole thing. And this is, you know, in the 1920s, if not slightly earlier. And when you see the colored images of that, it looks modern, you know, smooth, you know, sort of smooth curves with like light pink colors. And it looks like modern, you know, design or even like mid-century design. It's completely outstanding. When was that built? The, oh, well, the Gertianum's actually, I think, burnt down like twice. So I think it's been built three times, which is another thing. But let's see, Gertianum. Uh, if you don't know how to spell that, it's G-O-E-T-H-E-A-N-U-M. Who doesn't know how to spell that? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, obviously, you can see uh, at one point I had a dome. There's paintings all over the interior of it. It's so interesting. He's doing Pharaoh cement. I like it. Yeah. Oh, this is this is his masterpiece. Um, him and his whole group. He designed the whole thing. Uh, it's way ahead of its time. It's incorporating all kinds of uh, sacred geometry and uh, all kinds of stuff. He he. Steiner was obsessed with the idea of metamorphosis. And he got that from Goethe, who the name, the building's named after, the guy who wrote Faust and, you know, mm -hmm. he's into all, all that kind of stuff. He, he's also like a natural scientist. Um, and Goethe, being a natural scientist and sort of like this poet and mystic, 
he saw that or realized that metamorphosis was the process uh, underlying the whole world. You know, everything is a constant state of like evolution, change. Um, and that's actually goes on to be Alfred North Whitehead's process ontology, the philosopher, um, that sort of the only thing constant is, is change. Mm -hmm. um, and in all of Steiner's work, uh, which is interesting, you see him referencing plant life all the time. Um, and, and, you know, metamorphosis for him was, you know, we usually think of like a butterfly or something, but for him was really like a, a you know, germinating a seed that, and then it becomes a plant or it's budding and fruiting and flowering, all of that kind of stuff. That's what he was. He was actually thinking plant life. Um, Goethe and Steiner, they both were looked to the plant kingdom yes. as like a higher, a higher form um, r rather than the an animal kingdom. And with architecture, he thought that the principles of creation, so like sacred geometry and things of, like you, you were talking about the, with the heart and things like that, should be mixed with metamorphosis, which is a weird idea. That was like his theory behind architecture. And so with the, meta, with the metamorphosis idea, this sort of dynamic uh, movement to the building um, or to the inside, the interior is even crazy in there probably more crazy than the outside. Um, with that metamorphosis idea, he's introducing a temporal variable. So he's introducing time into something which is a spatial art, mm -hmm. which is very weird to do. <laughs> and what's interesting is Goethe, who, who's kind of like the guy he looks up to the most, has a quote where he famously called architecture frozen music. Yes. And... Steiner said, yes, architecture is frozen music and I want to unfreeze it. I just <laughs> want it to be music. You know, like I don't want it to be frozen anymore. I want it to be like moving. Uh -huh. um, and he thought that the laws of architecture were really just projections of the laws of the human body. That was like the crux of his architectural theory mm. uh, that it was all, it was all just things, um, from the sort of occult anatomy of, of mankind. And he, he had weird ideas about, because this is kind of a paradox, right? Architecture is the oldest art, just building your house. Um, but it's somehow to him the most spiritual, which is a weird thing. Um, and he, he talks about that. Um, and it, it, he goes in, you know, he wanted architecture to be much more artistic and less scientific. And he had a good quote on that as well, where he said, science can understand the world, but only art can create a new world. Uh, and he, he's a very artistic guy. I, I, I have to completely agree, because like I was just talking about, he understood radionics. Mm -hmm. He didn't call it that, but like he understood scalar physics and the whole notion in scalar physics is if you want a desired result all you have to do is engineer its environment absolutely yeah. that's and that's what the ceremonial magicians someone like alistair crowley or eliphas levi or these people that's basically what they're saying is um like crowley i don't know how familiar you are with him but i'm not in in his magic his statement about what magic is is he said 
it has the aim of religion with the method of science. <laughs> that, that's how he that's how he that's how he, he described and it was the same thing it was like look you can get your desired result if you can control the variables um it's super interesting and and that gets into our architecture sort of like the spiritual aspect of it uh, and by the way here's an interesting thing steiner when talking about how important architecture is and sort of like the spiritual aspect of it he notes he said you you would it would behoove you to note that in the bible noah's ark which is the vessel which humanity is saved by has definite and explicit dimensions yes which he said he just left it that he just kind of mic dropped he just said just think about that why is that Mm -hmm. This, this ship this thing that saves humanity they tell you exactly, um, not just how it was built, but sort of the dimensions of it, the proportions of it. Why? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that, That's sort of another like Rosicrucian type uh, Easter egg that he drops and says, go go uh, think over that for a while. So, uh, dude, I, I have had on so many levels been dancing and swimming in the Rosicrucian waters. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told uh, like, a couple months before my grandmother died that her great great grandfather was knights templar oh wow very interesting and so i was like oh okay what does that mean i had no idea i, I didn't know anything about the knights templar sure I, I told the only alchemist that i know about it and he's like what and mm-hmm. then i found myself teaching a, a dome building course in um almas portugal which was just like right next to exactly where the Knights Templar, when they were ousted from Western Europe, essentially they were brought to to Lisbon or just east of Lisbon or just west of Lisbon, excuse me, Portugal. And they had like the town I was in was literally like all Knights Templar castles and like you know underground tunnels and stuff like that and i'm like okay this is really weird and then in all my years of studying architecture and getting into dome building and everything like that i find that like the best domes in the world are essentially the the phi ratio right and and when you look at the phi ratio and and how to actually do the structural form well guess what that is the Venus, like if you were to look at Venus in its its path around the sun, it makes a rose. It does, yeah. As a 40, a super interesting orbit, by the way. I don't know if it, you're, yeah, it's amazing. And so I'm like, okay, and architecture in itself is very Venusian because it's about the aesthetic, the harmonic aesthetic yeah. that you apply to something to not only induce a higher level of consciousness sure but it's also there because it will stand the test of time because whether we know what whether we want to believe it or not a cube will not stand the test of time wow fascinating because steiner talks about that he talks about the rose crops um which is like you said that venusian uh, cycle and which i believe is a 40-day orbit 
which is interesting because people, you know, like Jesus and many people spent like 40 days and 40 nights right. in the death and things like that. Um, and Steiner says, he says that the Rosicrucians were sort of preparing humanity for the next evolution. Cause he's all about metamorphosis, all about evolution. He's always talking about sort of like the stages um, and sort of projecting that outwards into the mm -hmm. future. And he says that, the cross, at least the cross esoterically to Steiner was a symbol of earth, of, of matter. Um, it was where spirit meets matter sort of thing. And Plato said the same thing as well, um, which is interesting because that was like 300 years before Christ. Uh, and then obviously Christ on the cross is literally spirit meeting matter, you know, God meeting the, the wood, you know, the nails. Mm -hmm. And um, Steiner said that that material earthly version of christianity where we where we see the man on the cross um is just this stage it's what we needed to get started the next stage is the rose cross um which to him was like sort of the next more ethereal esoteric version of christianity of, of the future christianity and and to him the rosicrucians were the initiators of that they were just sort of um prepping the field you know wow it, it, yeah super super interesting that you could go down if you look up by the way look up the interior of the Gertianum. i don't know if you pulled up any pictures of that but it, it's like mind-blowing yeah i'm just looking at the rosy cross and like how much sim symbolism is put in that thing oh yeah they they, they were not uh messing around no yeah it's, it's all there Okay, I have the Gertie. Let me go backwards here. If you just type interior, there's some very interesting images. That's where you really see his color and um, smooth lines and things like that. He wanted it to be dynamic and, and sort of show movement. Yeah, it's funky. It's very funky. Everything Steiner is funky. The fonts they use on the title of the books and things, everything's weird and sort of, uh, he was, you know, he was an artist. He basically wanted to create like his own aesthetic. Look at that. I mean, this is the twenties. He's doing this. Who was doing that in the 1920s? <laughs> like Dude, that pink, that pink room looks like it, it's in a magazine today. You know, I must've been like some sort of like, I'm just finding more and more like there's somehow some way the genetics play out in mm -hmm. a very odd way. Like the way all this happens, it's, it's kind of freaky to me because even what really like not a week before I hear you on one-on-one -on -one talking about the Rosicrucians, I, I got messaged from an astrologer uh, that I had been working with and I told her essentially that I was doing um, people's uh, charts for their conception. And it was just because I had wor working with massage clients for over 25 years. I was like, you know, it's very obvious to me that people present more as their conception time than they do as their, as their birth time. Right. And so she sends me this whole thing from the Rosicrucians. That's yeah, that's the way the Rosicrucians do their do their or did there, I should say, because I've been trying to look for 
like <laughs> modern day rosicrucians that do astrology oh, yeah. yeah and it's, a, and it's oh, a joke now but like and so i found this whole she sent me this opus of like their their whole rationale behind it and then i hear you talking about it and like the profound not like i know i'm making this this is all anecdotal but i kind of trust my experience with things yeah the when you watch the OA and you go through the whole trip that's going on, I think that's probably somebody that was very involved with this whole notion of baptism through drowning, mm -hmm. which if I heard you correctly in one of your other podcasts, or maybe it was um, yeah, somebody um... else, because there's something every single person I know that has died mm -hmm. is very comfortable with DMT. Like sure. with, with DMT in their system, because when you physically die, that endogenous, mm -hmm. you know, substance floods you. And yes. like now you just have sort of one, you don't really have the fear of death because it's so wonderful on the other side. Yeah. And number two, you're just kind of privy to extra information. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, Rupert Sheldrake is the one who talks about. Uh, who you would really like if you're not familiar i've with read him i've read morphic okay. resonance i've say, i've been i've been on yeah. his tip for 15 years yeah I'm, I'm, nice. yeah, yeah. yeah i figured i figured you would be um he's the one actually who talks about um he has a great book called science and spiritual practice which is really really fascinating and one of the things in there is he talks about how the early baptisms were more than likely near death induced near-death experiences uh, where like you, you were saying with the show you would be drowned just straight up you'd be drowned and they'd be ready to bring you back um and and again that's probably what they were doing in uh the pyramids right they say there's never been a mummy found but there's tombs you know and those why, tombs they know the, sarcoph the, the sarcophagi are more yeah. than likely they were water holding Yes. So they're either a holding for people giving birth because yeah. the thing is, is that it wasn't that the Egyptians were just into like, Oh, death in the next world. They were also into portaling in mm. Pharaohs of past. Yeah. It, it was a two way street going on. It wasn't just a one way out, you know, sure. that's awesome. So I, uh, I completely concur with that. Have you ever heard of Wim Hof? and the Wim Hof yeah. breathing method. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he, when he gives his account of like when he was on the verge of suicide and he was walking by this frozen river and he was on the bank of the frozen river and he heard the river calling to him and he just mm -hmm. instinctually knew that the river, the ice cold river would heal him. Wow. And he, he jumped in and I forget how long he was in there, but it, most people you would have died of, you know, hypothermia, but he went in and he just started going through his breath. Now this will sound really funny because <laughs> I was just a gay ass kicker in football, That's but nice. like as a kicker, we don't run around that much. And mm -hmm. I played in Michigan and it was cold. Yeah. We had we played some games like we played in Indiana one year in 1995 where it was like negative 20 with the wind chill. 
And I'm not like one of these other guys that's running around, you know, yeah. keeping my body temperature up. So I remember as a, as, as somebody that was just trying to survive and keep my wits about me, sure. I, one day I was so cold. I was just like, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I, I can't be here. And then the other, the other part of me was like, no, you have no choice. Like toughen up buttercup. Yeah. And then I went into this very weird state of breathing where I was like almost willing with my breath an internal fire, like an internal heat. And from that point on, I never was bothered by the cold. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. They've done um, ES EEG, uh -huh. ESG, little uh, things on the, a bunch of monks. I don't know if you've seen that study no. before. It's, it's a, it's a real study. They hooked up all these monks who walk barefoot um, through the Himalayas. They make a pilgrimage like once a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, like you said, it that's snow just like blizzarding in their face. And they're wearing like a little, you know, sash or whatever, little tunic and no shoes or sandals. Um, and they measure their um, internal interior body temperature or whatever things, mm -hmm. all those metrics, and they just keep them totally constant. It's all breathing. It's all in, all in their head, and they're just they just keep walking, and, and the scientists are like, "What the hell is going on?" I mean, it's so interesting. So there's something with this where you know we're talking about mind over matter, and then if you have mind over matter, then you get into the Steiner, Schauberger, you know, Tesla world where it's like okay, if we are going to form matter, we're going to form matter in a way that creates a harmonic that uplifts right. the human spirit, like actually increases yeah. the quality mm -hmm. of what's occurring instead of decreasing the quality of what's occurring. Yeah. Yeah. Steiner talks about that directly. He says that um, architecture in unconsciously impresses imprints on on the people um and and can cause all kind all kinds of things um and that that's an ancient idea you know in neoplatonism you have theurgy which is sort of their form of magic or um or what have you and in particular you with eamblichus he's one of the later neoplatonists he's very mystical and very magical so he he kind of rebelled from the uh, more like Ken Wheeler type Neoplatonism, where it's all very like monistic and rational and untangling these like dialectical uh, contradictions in your mind to sort of ascend upwards. Iamblichus mm -hmm. rebelled against that and said, "No, I uh, I think that a uh, matter is actually divine, because you know a lot of those those sort of more contemplative schools." whether it's in the East or the Greeks uh, that or the Gnostics, they basically started from the presumption that there's speed that's dualistic, right? It's like spirit and matter and matter's bad. I need to get out of here. <laughs> you know, this body's a prison or this world's a prison. I need to flee. In the Amblichus, this is interesting. The Amblichus used a one proof to, to sort of prove that matter is divine. And what he said was, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, 
Plato's idea of recollection. It's the idea that we don't learn anything. We just remember things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very different idea of, of, of knowledge and wisdom. You're sort of tapping into something. It's much less sort of like a computer, just like picking up on uh, patterns or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the Amblick has said, well, if, ma- if matter is evil, then why is it that in order to re- recollect something, in order to learn something, or, or in order to have my memory sparked about something that I already knew, um, do I have to see it played out in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. These things are learned in matter. So you see something happen or you see, you know, whatever it is that's being taught to you or played out in front of you, you have to see it. It has to be shown to you or told to you or you know, acted out in front of you or something material in that way. And, and, and then you learn it. And that sort of divine wisdom is coming through matter. And he said, how can it be that um, matter, matter is evil if in order to recollect something, I have to go through matter? You know, right. he's like, clearly, it's like a divine channel. It's the opposite of evil. And that was his proof. Um, and he, therefore, became a theurgist. Um, in a material sense. So he, he, he was very, you know, one of the earliest like ceremonial magicians where he had tools um, w- like we talked about earlier to sort of create specific ritual settings in which he could uh, accomplish certain goals. Uh, and he was using matter to his advantage, using material things as a divine medium, you know, not as an evil uh, prison, you know, that you're stuck in. And I think Steiner and Tesla and all these guys are onto the same thing. They see, you know, they don't think that this is like um, just a world of suffering and evil. And I just need to get out and sit in my room, sit in a cave and think my way out of it. They're like, no, like this is a beautiful, harmonic, sacred, uh, proportionate world that we can make our domain, really. It really is. I, uh, because I went through probably six years in Vedanta Advaita, Mm. which is all about like, you know, getting sure essentially knowing the big self, not the little self. Yeah. Knowing like the, the origin awareness. Right. And Mm. in that practice, especially in India, it's very anti-materialist. It's very like, you know, ascetic is the term ascetic. Yeah. Like anything material, you shouldn't be giving your attention to. Yeah. And and the irony was after I was going through that, while I was going through it, I was like, no, because it's at, it's absolutely the opposite. Yeah. Because why is it when I'm in the spirit realm, all the spirits want to get back here? Yeah, sure. It, well, so there's a book called Siddhartha by yes. Herman Hath. Yeah, yeah. In that book, one of the things that Siddhartha, one of his, like, he's like beating his head against the wall because... He says this, he goes and studies with the uh, sadhus, I think it was, and he becomes basically a wandering monk mm-hmm. and he gives up on it. And someone asks him, they're like, why did you give up on that? You know, you're a holy man. And he says, he said, I did achieve what they said I would achieve. Like you were saying, I would go into these states. I would have experienced sort of an ecstatic thing. But I, he said he was frustrated because he always came back. No matter what he did, he always came back. Mm. And so he said, 
if I keep coming back, this must be pretty important, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that, that to me reading that it's a fiction book, but, um, uh, it's very much informed. Um, yes. And I was, I was like, wow. I was like, you, you know, he's right. I know you've called yourself a phenomenologist and I'm a phenomenologist too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much about the here and now and, um, divine, you know, matter as divine, you know, not, not like a prison. We're not on a prison planet that yeah. we need to flee, you know, or something. This no, is it- important. And I hear that, like when I hear that from people, I immediately can feel their like absolute fear. Like yeah. I can, I can feel that they're not clear. I've never come across somebody that's like clean energetically. That's like, oh, this world sucks. I shouldn't be here. It's a prison. Yeah. You know, there's so much, so many levels of projection that are going on. It's just like, oh it's obvious you need more time here and in this is interesting too in in neoplatonism um the reason i keep bringing up neoplatonism is because i've I've spent like all year studying it uh so forgive me for no you don't have you're forgiven my son um, thank you (laughs) Um, but in neoplatonism theurgy is their practice of ascension that's what they call it theurgy Mm -hmm. and like i said iamblichus had his sort of material way about it that i think is interesting um and plotinus and these people that uh, guys like ken wheeler into they had a much more contemplative internal form but in both practices you ascend only to come back down like a lightning bolt mm-hmm. literally like ascend to the heavens and strike back down with all this energy to um sort of vitalize or invigorate uh, the material world there, it was not just ascend and, and just keep going up, you know, it was very much a sort of arc, really, it, mm-hmm. it was go up and come flying back down, you know, with, with, uh, with fury and sort of like a view from above. That's just super interesting to me, at least. Mm. It, and I have <laughs> the car I was in when I was two years old got struck by lightning. I've had like so many lightning encounters. Like uh-huh. the the valley I lived in was called the Diamante Valley, which in Spanish means the Diamond Valley, but yeah. in Sanskrit, Diamante means lightning. Wow! And it, there was so much lightning there, and so there's like lightning has been a great teacher for me, especially being a South Florida boy. Like God, the amount of lightning that we experienced there. Yeah is pretty significant um this is i'm looking at this 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 symbol here you can see it can't you yes yep this is so deep oh yes yeah because i mean even having the cross the, the the cross done this way you know this this infers the hypercube and i'm just looking at these these cardinal directions that they're giving Mm. it's kind of fun that they have hebrew there i wonder um you know because i'm now exploring you know by the time this comes out i would have released my my podcast with uh this gentleman named tom sherman that is essentially he created a calendar that just met just very on the most basic level and mapped um, light cycles. 
and then mapping yeah. light cycles and then matching uh, light cycles, it ended up creating five seasons. Hmm. So if you have five seasons, um, like, let's just do that. Let's just do the, well, how should I put this? Um, Venus 40 cycle. Hmm. So when you, when you go ahead and put in the actual light cycles, it ends up, you end up with five seasons in a year. And so you have summer, which is the pinnacle of light. Um, then you have you have what's known as spring and autumn. They have the same amount of light. And then you have fall and winter that have the same amount of light. So mm -hmm. you have a pentagram or a pentagon. Because wow. what, yeah. what ends up happening is if you just connect the ends of the tip of this, you end up having a pentagon. You know, yeah. pentagon... Like this is a pentagon, yeah. and that just so happens to be the shape of the domes I built. <laughs> oh wow, the, the Vitruvian man too. It's, it's man, which, you know, which is all five. Steiner was saying yes, that, and that's why Steiner was saying that architecture is human anatomy. You know, so this is where it gets to be a lot of fun. Is if you in in that pentagram. If you put in, I'll just put in um, Great Pyramid Giza. Ken Wheeler is very big, and he's the person that brought it to my attention of something mm. that is called an incommensurate geometry. Sure. Yeah, I, I listen to him all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you and I are like his big fanboys right now. Fanboys that yeah. aren't like, you know, totally, uh, let's just say, have some some social skills. Yes, so, that's hilarious. <laughs> so you have this pyramid, right? And from, mm -hmm. from one edge to the top is 52 degrees. But that's if you're to look at one edge. Like most people don't know that the pyramids, if you're to look top down, they're actually octagonal and they have a slight indention in the middle of each one of these walls interesting that goes in but if you turn it at a, at a, at one third and look at the angle of it so let's say it's this like this is the angle this to this to this like if this was one this would be uh 0.616 so it's one to 1.616 that is the the golden ratio or close oh. to it, right? And what makes that geometry so amazing, it's the only geometry that we know of that you can bisect it at any angle and it repeats itself ad infinitum. Right. It's fractal, right? It retains the, um, the Well, it, it's literally like you want to laugh. They made the, the largest structure in the world at the time out of the most solid stuff that's ever made to encode that this is a hologram right the fractal hologram yeah same same deal yeah if you go one direction or the other one direction is a fractal the other direction is a hologram amazing and it's this is the holographic code it, this is the incommensurate geometry put in three dimensions wow the architecture like i mean it's 
and to the lesser mind, they're like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, like most people, you know, have awe when they see it, yeah. but they don't realize to what extent that that, what that's actually encoding, <laughs> like what, what that presents on, on such a high level mm. and to have this incommensurate geometry that's based on phi, because that's what that ratio is. And then that's actually the relationship of all hydrogen to water or hydrogen to oxygen. Sure. And so it's getting back to that man that's standing on his head in, inside these incredible cisterns in yeah. Constantinople. Right. Like that, like there you are, you're in the water, you're in the womb, you're in the mother's like to be yeah. in the physical body. You know, we're always in our mother. Like we're we're in yeah. the inner space right now and and we we are you know being metamorphosized like there is anybody that thinks that you can step in the same stream twice you're you're kind of ignorant or you're not sensitive like you're not understanding what's actually happening sure have you have you looked into alfred north whitehead no no, you're you the have. first person to bring him to my attention. You have to. He he's kind of one of those guys, like a Shawberger, where he's behind a lot of other people, and it's almost like you have to be invited to the club. Sheldrake, Rupert Sheldrake, he's maybe his biggest influence. Terence McKenna was massively influenced by Whitehead's philosophy. He created a philosophy called, uh, or it's really an ontology. Um, I've heard of ontology. Yeah, ontology is like a, the study of existence, of being, mm -hmm. basically. Right. So theories of what it means to be at all, to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Whitehead's opinion, ontology had been ignored since Plato, that basically nobody wanted to touch it. You know, everyone was philosophizing about all kinds of stuff, um, ethical things, political things. But nobody wanted to get down to the, uh, everyone just like, all right, Plato got it. We'll, we'll move. We'll just, uh, I don't want to risk that one. And Whitehead, he's a freak genius, like complete Schauberger level, mm -hmm. Steiner, like, nut job, um, just insane. And he created a philosophy called process philosophy, um, which is all, it's very, uh, much in the Heraclitus vein, which is who you decided with the stepping the same river twice, um, that the only thing that's constant is change. Uh, and to him, the world was not made of matter. It was not made of things. It was made of processes. I love that. And so, yeah, it's his, that's a rabbit hole. His, his philosophy is fascinating. Um, and he actually gets into theology and all kinds of other really interesting things. He's a professor at Harvard in like the 40s. Um, and he goes all into this. And that's where Sheldrake kind of gets his basis. And Terrence McKenna gets his whole uh, trippy ideas from. Um, and I, I recommend to everyone that could be a whole other. If you want to look into him, we could do another podcast just on him because nobody covers him. He's very daunting, very difficult. Um he has a lot of his own vocabulary, to be honest. Um, I love that. <laughs> they were not words for this stuff. Um, he just had to attack it 
you know, and be like, look, I'm not afraid to attack being itself, you know, just go for it. What is it? You know, what are we doing here? And he absolutely had answers. Uh, let's see, I could pull up a few notes here. When you brought him up that everything's a process that made me think of Walter Russell. Oh yeah. Cause what, cause what Walter Russell was bringing up was essentially that we don't actually, what we're calling matter is a process. We're looking at something in, in one frozen aspect of time. And in that, in that momentary glimpse of time, then you actually have a coalescing of 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 different forces and energy wow. that that makes something appear solid right and then as time goes on then like the like alfred white north how, how do you say his name alfred north whitehead alfred north whitehead it like time <laughs> time is i mean that's the reason why chronos is the archetype it's the reaper the the time will will ravel and unravel, ravel and unravel. And if you're under the notion that things are constant, just the very name of, of this, you know, we're in the temporal reality. It's temporary. And mm -hmm. like, it, so therefore it's not real <laughs> because the very definition of reality yeah. has has real in it and real means permanent and there's nothing in that tier that's permanent you know yeah. so i think people have things in reverse like the material realm and this goes back to a lot of yeah, the 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 knowledge that it sounds like was going on in prague mm -hmm. and what like the the people that made the secret societies that made the nazis what they were into was that they actually looked at potential as being solid wow dude like, this is crazy I, honestly i know I, we, you've said you've been freaked out a few times that you were saying things that are like literally alfred north whitehead's theories he has a theory called the um the theory of misplaced concreteness yes it's exactly what you just said that the things which are considered concrete and material are the least concrete and material yes. and ideas and things and um, processes and things like that are the most concrete and un and that's platonic too um, because the, the realm of forms is sort of um, yes concrete and steady these are pure principles yes and then when it comes into being they're they're much more uh, illusory so to speak yeah that, I, re I read I read it. I read a series um, that was actually, I threw it out because it, at the time it wasn't, it, it didn't, I was a, I was a, I was in the globe delusion back then. And so when it got to like actually modeling our universe, I was like, oh, this is utter garbage. And I threw it out. But what it was, was like these societies, like the Thule society and all this, they probably had like lots of Rosicrucian, uh, you know, underpinnings yeah but their whole thing was if you were to model the cosmos essentially space is like what you and i are in right now like if yeah. you and i can move our hands and move our bodies and we actually have space to like move and have locomotion that's the real space yeah. 
the metaphysical boundary between us and the causal plane is like what we call the luminaries that are above us, right? The heavens. Yeah. But what's on the other side of that is solid, like mm. utterly solid. And the only way you can get from point A to point B, if you're going to do like some of this, uh, let's just say the non-conventional traveling is you mm -hmm. actually have to change your frequency range. Wow. There isn't, you don't, you don't get from point A to point B through thrust. Right. You get from point A to point B through resonance. Right. Yeah. It's like quantum type of stuff. I don't, I know you might not like the word quantum, but that's what <laughs> most, most people think of yeah. when, you, when you say that kind of stuff. Um, and, and Whitehead, he's so ahead of his time. He's another one of these guys. Um, I can't wait to read him. He had, he had two things that are going to interest you. That's what you just said. One, he said that time is specious. And that word is S-P-E-C-I-O-U-S, specious, meaning it's not one thing. It's sort of like a movie, right? Mm -hmm. Where every moment that we consider one moment is really like uh, three seconds or something. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like two seconds mm -hmm. that we're considering one moment, but it's really like a bunch of frames that we yes. put together. And so he talks about sort of time traveling or the idea of precognition of future events that basically some people's, some people could be compressing more frames than others. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that specious moment for some people could be very long, you know, that where they can see sort of into the future or past. And some people, it might be one second. Some people, it might be one year or something, you know, crazy. Um, and then the second idea is, you, you you touched on this, which is another thing that I was like, this is crazy. You haven't read this guy because you're, you're, you might not even need to read him. You're already uh, up to date. He had an idea which really influenced Terrence McKenna. Um, Terrence McKenna had an idea which was pretty far out. He thought that time was not history and time were not being pushed forward. Mm -hmm. They were being pull pulled right. forward. Which would be a Schauberger idea. Right, because Schauberger and, was into suction and sure. he was he was into implosion and yeah. the the engine for nature, which we know is implosive. It's not propulsive. Right, and his idea was that there was sort of a singularity moment in the future, whatever that is. I I have no idea. That was actually pulling us towards it, mm -hmm. and he got that idea from Whitehead, because Whitehead says. He sort of blows apart. If you the first like thirty pages of his book, Process and Reality, just blows to smithereens. Dualism, um, the idea of like facts, things that are just like we know. You know, this is just a done. It's a done deal. Fact. Um, things like things being interdependent and not sort of like one unity. Um, all of that. He just throws it out the window and he's like, "This is ridiculous." And he goes right onto the kind of stuff that you're into, and he says to prove that cause and effect are not what they seem because you talked about sort of things being flipped. He mm -hmm. says, I will give you an example of cause and effect being flipped. He says that the imagination of a human being causes things to happen from the future backwards. Yes. So you, you imagine it, right? Maybe you're building a building. You imagine the building, you see it in your head. It's done. I know what it looks like. And then it comes back into reality it comes mm -hmm. backward 
it's and you 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 build it you know what i mean and so it wasn't um built just from nothing forward it was actually built from something sort of finished back into um and which bro is kind of fractal any artist any artist will tell you in any venue when they start their art there's mm -hmm. a certain point where you get in the cut and it's working you you're not sure. working it yes yeah uh, henry miller the fiction writer he said when i sit down at my typewriter i listen yes yeah, and that's absolutely true. Uh, he didn't say I write or I type. He said I listen. So um, you're you're gonna get such a kick out of this, man. Like I have chills. Like I'm my whole body is just a goose goosebump right now. So when I was in college, I was really sick of all the fiction that I was watching. Yeah. Like it was it was just like X Files, and like everything was a derivative of that. Sure. And I was like, this is boring as f. You know, like I'm I'm done with this. I'm I'm just gonna write my own fiction. So what sure. I did was I just like dropped in to like this like really like open state and I had one intention, just one. I was like, I'm going to write something original. Mm -hmm. So I have 40 page I wrote 40 pages of this novel. And at the time, I was like, it was like 1994, 95. I, it was very ahead of its time. But dude, everything ended up being true that um, I wrote about. And yeah. it, this was like a science fiction novel. Wow. That's crazy. So then I, in 2013, I end up getting divorced from my first wife. I have some free time. And I'm once again, I'm just tired with media. Like media is just so boring to me. And I'm like, I'm going to write something original. Yeah. I get this three volume tome, like drops in my lap. I got into that same space of like, I had one intention. I want to write something original. I, yeah. I'm tired of the, the same storylines being repeated at me over and over and over. Mm -hmm. It come I come to find everything that I thought was fictional in that ended yeah. up being real. And so That's... I am fascinated with Christopher Nolan, the director. Um, I'm sure you know a few of his movies. Yeah, he did a Tenet and uh the Inception. Yeah. Inception, yeah, all that stuff. So in Tenet, he explores retro causality. Right. What and so this is right in the cut of what you're talking sure. about. Yeah, yeah, things coming back at you. Uh, and then Whitehead was, he was on that in the '40s. You know, he's writing about cause and effect being flipped, and he's like, "Look, you could just, you could do what we sort of like the things we just talked about. Just a few examples, and all of a sudden, your dualistic material cause and effect, like you said, a uh, billiard balls model is just blown to." pieces just right there in two minutes you know and and he gives you not only that but like i said other proofs and he was he was really big on um he really didn't like that science would make statements and sort of not define the terms very well yes if that makes sense that was like he was hung up on it he was like look these things that they're saying actually have very like metaphysical um definitions to them if you go down far enough and they're just 
skating over them as if they're concrete facts that are, you know, billiard balls or whatever you mm-hmm. what have. And yeah, he very mystical as well. He's kind of considered like a, a Christian mystic and really a neo neoplatonist because um, he's very much platonic. I love that. You know, something that you probably, I don't know if you've given any attention to uh, law, but Not really, so this is going to, this is going to blow your mind. Mm-hmm. So all this esoteric stuff that I came to just once again, I, I came through the back door with all this stuff. So I wasn't like I was looking for it. I end up being around my first creditor in my life. And the cool thing when you're around a creditor is all they ever do is ask questions. Yeah. And so in the Bible, you're either a creditor or you're a debtor. Yeah. And so just like you were saying with Alfred North North Whitehead, like the whole thing with him is like, he got tired of science making these definitive declarative statements. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's bullshit. Yeah, completely. It is bullshit. Like you, like on a long enough timeline, it all is different. It just is. And you can tell the majority of what's being said in, in out there in the parlor room is rhetoric. It's not, it's not, it's rhetoric posing as fact. (laughs) It's rhetoric to induce some sort of emotional state. So I'm around this creditor and it takes me a while to figure out that I'm around a creditor. Yeah. And then I started asking the right questions and I was like, because I'm just watching what's occurring in my system around the creditor, because there was just this higher, higher level of consciousness without another being trying to impose its will. Right. There wasn't like a guru or anything like that. It was like just a literal, like I'm being levitated by being held to the fire of answering these questions in a conscious way. Sure. And then I was like, yeah, so how how can I learn about such and such? And he's like, oh, get contract for dummies. That's yeah. where you, that's where you should start with with the law. Okay. And so I got that book Contract for Dummies and I started to read it and it was the most esoteric fucking thing I'd ever given my attention to. Yeah. Esoteric truth, not abstract mm-hmm. esotericism like wow. because what it was doing, like the whole basis of law is ordering your mind as to induce the correct environment. Sure. There is a direct connection in the law that will show you that your mind and your environment are one. Wow. There is nothing I ever came across with reading all these giants that said it so plainly because in the law, guess what? You have to define the terms and yeah. And the rubber, this is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, that's real. That's what I mean. You have to, you can't just skip over. It's got to be, it's got to come into reality. You know, you have to like make things explicit and known. And it's also relational. Right. Because 
if you're in a, if you're a human, you're going to have interaction with other humans and you can yeah. have, you can read all these great giants and all this stuff. And most of them, you know, you're not actually having a relationship with, right. So you, you can have this like incredible mental, like mind meld with somebody, but it's not actually dynamic in one's direct experience of life. But when you get into the law, yeah. You start to understand all this esoteric knowledge in direct person-to-person -person communication. Wow. Yeah, I like that. That's that's a well said. I I think you're going to really dig it if you choose to choose to yeah, like. Will, I will just send me a few books, or I know you mentioned one, um, and I'll trade off with you. I'll send you a few books on. Awesome. I was just I pulled up a few notes on my phone. I don't know if you want me to. Yeah, go cover. for it. I, uh, so I, I kind of explained to you the process, process philosophy, mm. but where it gets interesting is that not every, not, uh, it's not just that everything's in a process of moving. It's not, not just moving, it's creating. Mm. And that's where it gets interesting. Yes. Was he had these theories of sort of, um, that creation is constantly ongoing it's sort of like the world is being like sort of printed like moment to moment, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And that novelty is being created. So the everything is becoming more and more um, novel, original, if that makes sense. In every moment, there's sort of an original thing. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, how time works. And to him, that will obviously also Terrence McKenna, to on a little aside, thought that novelty was speeding up. This process of creation was speeding up towards that singularity moment and that's why like in the last hundred years we've had more innovation than the last thousand years you know so on um he got that from whitehead and whitehead's ideas of the world being created from moment to moment he thought that that replaced the theory of matter so this process or this constant creation was actually what the world was made of so to speak Mm -hmm. it's a weird idea because mm -hmm. it's not made of something like tangibly but it's made of a process and in his quote he said creativity does not have a character of its own just like matter right it, it's not you can't touch it or something but you can't touch matter either um, and he said calling matter a substance really makes no sense because none of it is really the same and it has no neutral state of pure matter. Right. And so he said, it's no, you know, saying the world's made of creativity or made of this like sort of uh, novelty producing process is not any weirder than saying it's made of matter. Mm -hmm. uh, people originally think it's so far out and then he explains it and you're like, oh, it's not that far out. Um, let's see what else he said. This is where he gets a little mystical. He said, everything has relevance and is That's relevant true. to something else. And he said that unshakable thing, which everything is ultimately relative to, is God. And mm -hmm. I thought that was, that was interesting. That's Did you say thing. relevance or relative? Relevant. Relevant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he said everything's relevant. Uh, and then he said, if you added everything up, what it's relative to is God. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, anyways, let's see what else he's got in here. Um, 
Oh, here's a here's a good one earlier up in my in my notes. He talks about um observation. He says that uh that being can't be studied empirically, like an ontology. Mm -hmm. uh, existence cannot be studied empirically. No. Because it it can never be, well, obviously it can never be observed. It's just like a state. Mm -hmm. And it can never be um you can never give it any sort of uh controlled environment or anything like that. And so he, he really gets the matter on a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um it's like I said earlier, it's really hard to read, to be honest. Um there's a lot a lot of people start with a secondary material, other people who have sort of digested him. But if you're brave, I would read Process and Reality by Whitehead. Uh, he has I'm all of his own, yeah, his own vocabulary. And um, if you're well-read, I, I, yeah, I think, which I, I know you are, uh, I think you can tackle it. Um, it but it, it is very, very rewarding. I can tell you that. I've read, there was a time where I was reading one page a day. No joke. I, before bed, I would read one page, maybe two. And I would take notes on it, just one or two every day, and it and it was like a brain blast going. It was like fireworks, you know. I'd be like, "Whoa, you know, this guy's like outrageous," and he's yeah, he's definitely uh, worth worth studying for anyone out there. I think he's kind of underrated now, like like Schauberger and Steiner and a lot of other people kind of fly under the radar. What did he teach at Harvard? He taught philosophy. That's yeah, so and that's 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 famous. Um, because he says the first philosophy class he was ever in, he was the teacher. So he was, <laughs> never went, he never like uh, learned philosophy or anything like that. Yeah, in school. Um, yeah. Uh, so he kind of would brag about that. It's like my first ever philosophy class, and I'm the professor. That's awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. Oh, dude, that's so good. That is a good one. I'm all about that. Like I, I, I can, I can identify it like that. Yeah, oh, right. This is so good. Um, I have a lot to chew on with this. There's too much resonance with the, with the Rosicrucian stuff. Um, yeah. Because I look at it the way I tell people that, like the way I define it is like the naturalist philosophy which is like a grounded hermetic way yes. of life. Absolutely. It's grounded. It's not like, it's like literally like you're, you're just, yeah. you're hyper aware of your environment. Yeah. It's you very naturalistic it. and yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. And when they do get weird, like when, like when I was talking about their, their uh, sort of myths earlier, when they get into that stuff, it's, cryptic it's symbolic esoteric you know it's not like they literally you know <laughs> think all this stuff happened it's like a way to you know it's myth really mm -hmm. uh, i have some of their myths I, I could read you from and and they're strange um but they they will tell you that sort of the um the secrets are there i could finish up by reading one of them if you yes want. please let's do it get into one rosicrucian myth this is creation it gets weird it's sort of an alternative genesis and it leads up to uh, King Solomon's temple. Mm -hmm. And so one of the Elohim, which is already weird, by the way, <laughs> they're saying that there are several gods. Mm -hmm. um, one of the Elohim created a human being called Eve. That Elohim had a child with Eve called Cain. 
After that, another Elohim called Yahweh created a human being named Adam. And so you can already see mm -hmm. Adam and Eve are already from different um, parents, so to speak. Thank goodness. Adam, yeah, right. Because grow, growing up, I was like, as a little kid, I was like, incest much? Like, how can everybody come from just two? That doesn't, that, that can't. The Rosicrucians have it taken care of, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> he said, and then he says, Adam had a child with Eve and called him Abel. And so Cain is actually, right, if you, yeah, God and Eve, and then Abel is born of Adam and Eve. So Cain is a descendant of God, gods, and Abel is a descendant of man. Abel's sacrifices were pleasing to Yahweh, but Cain's were not because his birth was not ordained by Yahweh. It was from another God, and he was born of a different God. Cain killed Abel and was banished and started his own sort of race of people. Mm -hmm elsewhere adam had another child with eve to kind of replace cain named seth and then so we have two separate races of humanity uh one of them is of human parentage adam and eve and one of them is of godly parentage and this is a rosicrucian myth right it's supposed to be symbolic so that i'm not like they're not trying to recreate genesis or something it's very much a mythology um, that these sort of esoteric secrets are are in um let's see and then so steiner breaks that down by the way he says that all the people who made advancements in the arts and sciences in antiquity were descendants of cain um and then all the people who were sort of like these wise objective knowledgeable people but not in like tangible creative ways were human descendants mm -hmm. and and just so nobody gets too doesn't think this is getting too weird. They end up in Jesus, right? Both streams end up combining into Jesus. So it sort of ends that that whole thing. Um, and that's another part of the esoteric secrets. Mm -hmm. And out of Seth's line, the human line, comes King Solomon. He's the wise, objective judge and king. And uh, let's see. And then Hiram, who's Hiram Abiff, the, the Freemason legend. Yeah. Uh, he is a descendant of Cain. And so in them, you have the creator, the sort of architect coming from like this godly race. And then you have King Solomon, who's of the human race. And uh, he represents wisdom, objective wisdom and things like that, and sort of calm, um, calmness and humanness. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the background of their their mythology. And then it gets into it. Uh, so Sol Solomon hires Hiram, Hiram Abiff, to build his temple. Mm -hmm. And Solomon's wife likes Hiram. She's like, uh -oh. hey, I, she's like, hey, I like that guy. And uh, his wife, by the way, represents, according to Steiner, the human soul. So it's kind of like choosing between these two ideas. And it makes Solomon jealous. And so he plots something against him. But he also needs him. So he can't, he's kind of got to keep it there. So Hiram has trouble finishing the temple because his workers are not master builders, they're apprentices. And on his final touch of the temple, which he called the molten sea, you, you'll like this, it's weird. Uh, this sort of comes to a point, not having skilled builders. And the molten sea was going to be a huge bronze like sheet 
that was going to look like the ocean. It was like this crazy, they don't describe it that well, but it's some very interesting idea for the temple. And nothing had been done for it before. And they describe it as being extremely difficult to like use these oars and casting and all this stuff. Um, and Solomon hears that Hiram's having trouble, but he says, oh, it's not going to interfere. And ho hopefully it goes bad because I want him gone. Um, and it does go bad. This sort of sheet of bronze catches on fire mm -hmm. somehow the apprentices have no idea what they're doing and Hiram's like freaking out and he's like I gotta put this fire out and he's like pouring water on it and that's not really doing a whole lot and he hears in this in this myth he hears one of his ancestors say jump in the fire and he's like what <laughs> um and it says like don't be afraid you won't you're immune to the flames jump in the fire he jumps in the fire in this molten bronze sheet and he sinks to the center of the earth and he meets Cain, his long lost ancestor who's living there in sort of just like a divine, like a pristine state. And Cain uh, initiates him into the mystery of fire and the secret of bronze casting. And then his ancestor, who was sort of speaking to him in his head, gives him a golden triangle to wear as a, as a necklace and he gives him a hammer and then uh, when he goes back he's able to complete this molten sea and then Solomon's wife is like wow this is amazing this guy's the real deal Hiram I want to marry him and not you and the three apprentices who were giving Hiram all this trouble assassinate him they kill you what is it like juby jubilar jubilo no, I, I forget their names but they, they go to yeah. kill him and, they, and he's basically dead and they're searching for him and uh they recover the golden triangle that he's wearing and there's this uh molten sea this bronze like crazy structure that he had and um they actually preserve them for whatever reason because they wanted to kill him earlier but now all of a sudden they're like this is worth preserving and they preserve it in the holy of holies in sort of the temple of solomon and um the rosicrucians say basically that this the temple's not done but it will be able to be finished by whoever can understand this myth um and it's it's sort of at the crux of freemasonry and rosicrucianism super interesting i'm sure i skipped around a few details mm -hmm. but uh it's worth thinking over for sure that's awesome it, yeah pretty cool i've heard i've heard from other like other um mythologies which i think people are just trying to be rational about it like trying to be more rational than let's just say the classic christianity around like okay there's Adam, he's here to name everything. And then out of his rib, Eve is there. And then they start reproducing. And my question, like so young, like I don't even know how old I was. I was like, well, if Cain is kicked out of the garden, who did he go build the cities with? Like right. who did he who did he reproduce with? Yeah. Interesting. Like it, it's just such an it's such a basic question to yes. ask yeah and yeah, so the, yeah I, resolutions like we said earlier they 
have these little things that sound weird at first, but then you're like, wow, they actually solved a few contradictions that I come up with. Yeah, because I think people are like wanting to like believe in something and like you get this myth, but the myth is so irrational to, to like a logical mind. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. That doesn't like, how does that work? And then you're you're told, hey, stop thinking about it. Just believe. And it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't God give me a mind to think? Didn't God like actually give me the curiosity to actually ask this question? Sure. Yeah, the good news is people have have thought this stuff through and have <laughs> over the last two thousand years have used their brain and not swallowed it whole and have created esoteric understandings of the Bible and of all kinds of religious texts, um, which try to work out a lot of contradictions. And a lot of times they're doing that, like the story I just told, it's a myth, right? They're not telling you, they literally are telling you, this is not like a true version. It's just, if you can understand the truths, which are being tried, uh, which they're trying to tell in these stories, it's going to unlock doors for you, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and that's, why it's been so important. I mean, in Freemasonry and Rosicrucian for the last 500 years, they've been telling that story, you know, mm -hmm. worth probably thinking about, I would think. Yeah, I'm going to give it a gander, dive into it. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing Especially, that. Yeah, no problem. That is a Rosicrucian version. It's a little, I think it's a little different. Um, and Steiner has, for anyone who's interested, Steiner has his whole analysis of that myth too you can look up what he thought everything in that what does the pendant the triangle pendant represent and all this other stuff and it's mm -hmm. worth hearing him out on i think what did they call the myth uh they call it the temple legend the temple legend yeah okay and uh steiner has a book literally called i think literally called the temple legend let's see temple legend yeah the PDF is free, or it's not a PDF, but it's free online on the Steiner Rudolf Steiner Archive website. And yeah, again, pretty worthwhile. Hiram Abiff and all that stuff. And the Freemasons act out, right? They take that myth and they literally act it out as a play in front of you to initiate you. They act out him being assassinated by the three apprentices and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. I have recently met a couple of Masons and like knowingly met them, like knowing that they're yeah. Masons. I'm sure I've met others. Right. But uh yeah, there it's a it's an interesting um practice. I I will never get over I had moved back from India back to Florida and I was in Boynton beach and my timing was all thrown off. So I was like going for an early morning walk, like around three o'clock in the morning. And I guess I walked up on a Mason lodge. Interesting. And it freaked me out because the building had no windows. And I was like, who, what's going on? Cause like the parking lot was full mm -hmm. and they must've had some sort of event. Right. And the feeling I got of all the guys coming out and getting in their cars and driving past me, because I was just on the, I was just on the public road walking on the sidewalk, but yeah. they were all, you know, throwing shade at me. Cause what's this, what's this kid doing walking with his hoodie? Like 
they didn't know who I was. So I was just picking up their whatever. And uh, I was like, that feels like garbage. Like I I want nothing to do with that that energetic. Like it did not feel good at all. Yeah, modern day masonry is pretty lame. I I know several um, initiates from the from the bookstore people I've met and um who've told me I'm a mason and whatever some of them are pretty high up one had been a master mason of a lodge and he told me like straight up he said it's basically pizza and football and you know like nothing esoteric about it anymore it's just kind of a guy's club and like you said it kind of attracts the wrong people and stuff it's nothing super interesting (laughs) because a lot of this stuff like Crowley and Steiner and the rest of them, they made it, they made it exoteric. You know, it's very much available now. You don't need to mm-hmm. be in secret clubs. And so the clubs kind of just get the, uh, the, I don't know, the people lagging behind, you know, who are doing it kind of for the wrong reasons. Well, this has been awesome. You're you're such a wealth of knowledge. Where can people like tell them about your bookstore? Where where can they find you? We're definitely gonna have to do a series of talks because like I'm yeah. my mind is putty right now. Yeah, we can do as many talks as you want on all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm not easy to find. I wouldn't say I don't have anything to plug or sell or anything like that. I don't have a page or well, at least tell them about your bookstore. Yeah, I have a bookstore in Lake Worth called The Dancing Elephant. Mm-hmm. It is a metaphysical bookstore. And I have a publishing company called Gallo Glass Books. Our first book is coming out in a month uh, or maybe six weeks, something like that. And that has an introduction by Ken Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And it's on. It's a collection of uh, Neoplatonic writings. Uh, so Plotinus and Porphyry and Proclus. And that's going to be really interesting. And we're going to be banging out a lot of other books. Um, Tesla's on, the, we're considering. Uh, there's a book by Tesla or on Tesla that Ken recommended. I have it written down somewhere that, that we were thinking about publishing. Let me see oh, cool. I, I'm sure I have it somewhere. He said it's in the book on Tesla. I Ooh. said, that sounds interesting. It does. All right. I will send it to you, though. I have to go now. Okay. Sounds good, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. You ought to know Well, now you You ought to know by now I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Professor Longo. He, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of left a little bit speechless right now. His his way of tying in the Neoplatonists to 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 the traditions that were like if we're working from this time backwards, you know, tying everything that was going on in the Czech. Republic or Prague, and then how that all ties to the Byzantine Empire is quite enlightening. Um, (laughs) There are uh, forces at play that I guess you would call them the Western Roman Empire that are playing out a script 
right now in in current time and you could say that there's a dualism that is purposely been engineered between the universalists the catholics and the the the, the modern day jews or in israel and they are two so two two sides of the same coin and they have a a mutually assured destruction thing going on the mad thing going on right now and it's in a part of the world that we talk a lot about uh just north or just south of where constantinople was um in the turkish empire that we now know and there there's so much going on with this script of uh, essentially the the patriarchy the monotheistic way of looking at things this podcast dives more into the the monism or the 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 uh the notion of monism through the neoplatonist viewpoint which i have to admit that's more my rub <laughs> that's more where those are the waters i hang out in um i love the mystic christians um i've been a huge fan of rudolf steiner um i guess i've been somehow some way uh in the cut of like rosicrucian philosophy for quite a long time uh, hopefully you guys heard my podcast last week when I get into the sinusoidal curve of the new light calendar uh, with Tom Sherman. That was just mind-blowing. And um, to now understand Steiner in his mind with his architecture, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fully dive into Alfred north whitehead in his work as i mean that sounds just awesome that dude sounded like he had it going on um <laughs> i have built many a building for people that were in what we called the money tree from california the the growers before it went corporate and um they were really into terrence mckenna a lot of them you know my friends from grass valley or ojai california um, they, they, they introduced me to Terrence McKenna and all of his trippiness. And it's so glad to know that there's actually a grounded foundation, uh, for a lot of his theories, um, in Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead. So, uh, I got my research to do with this, the, the cosmology that's coming into play <clears throat> is is very clear now essentially if you were to say that there was like a, a way of modeling this existence it's it's around the whole notion of incommensurate geometry and if you were to think of the creator as being very efficient and very intelligent he has a a geometry that allows for everything that you see and experience to reduce down to one shape, <laughs> which can reoccur in multiple 
directions to create everything that you know and see. And so we touched in on this notion that for something to be real, it needs to be permanent, but there's nothing permanent that you're experiencing, nothing. If it's in the realm of experience, it is not permanent. So that's a huge existential statement because then it is like, well, what is real? What What is so? Like, what is the real real? <laughs> And that gets into this whole notion of eternity. And so I liked what Longo brought up in the sense that, you know, in some of these Western esoteric orders, when you had your enlightenment moment or your eureka moment, and your reconnection with God, you'd come immediately back down like in, in a bolt of light, lightning. You could call it the electrified bodhisattva <laughs> and you were back and you were like you've helped the animation go on and man there is this like you know ongoing transformative experience and be grateful for having form <laughs> Be grateful for having space and time to actually learn and um, go through the things that you need to go through. And then have the humility to understand that God knows what's best for you. And what, and you'll never be given something that you cannot handle. So, yeah. This has been a wonderful journey. I hope you can feel the amplitude of these latest podcasts are getting deeper and deeper and deeper. There is no fluff going on here. So uh, please share the podcast with people that you care about. Um, share it, like it. We're gonna we're making everything bigger and better here. Um, you can donate at tofrhq.com if you appreciate the podcast. I am doing a Rosicrucian-based uh, astrology thing now. Um, it's called the Celestic Profile. You can email me at info at tofrhq.com if that floats your boat. And uh, I'll profile you up with your conception chart. And um, yeah. Let's let's do this thing. Thank you for joining and I'll see you next week.